Heavenly Father, what, what we do need most, as Bobby prayed, is we need you. Um, but it's hard for us to sometimes grasp that because we think right now we need a lot of other things from you. But Lord, what we really need is you. We're thankful uh, for this hour, for this discipline. Uh, Lord, we're here to feast on your word. We know that it will feed our souls. We pray that the things we've handed to you, um, you you will keep away from us right now. And you will allow us by the Spirit's power to sit here in this moment, to sit at your feet and to be taught by you. Father, teach us. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's men said, Amen. Amen. Well, we are in Genesis 25, but I actually want to take you to a place in Romans. So I want you to turn in your Bibles first to Romans chapter chapter 9. I don't know if you've had this experience or had this experience at another time where you're reading through Romans and you're, you're going from chapter 1 through Chapter 3, understanding the, the gravity of our sin, uh, you get to, to the middle of chapter 3 and you're seeing this burst forth, this, this great righteousness of God that's been revealed and then it's unpacked for us, our justification, our adoption, our sanctification. We get to chapter 8, that incredible chapter of Romans that says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then it just goes on speaking of the Spirit's power all the way through that chapter. And it ends with that great crescendo of there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Uh, neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor demons. Because anything in all creation can separate us from the love of God. And then, boom, you hit chapter 9. And all of a sudden, chapter 9, 10, and 11 kind of rock your world a little bit. Because here in chapter 9, 10, and 11, Paul is dealing with the, uh, the issue or the question of, well, what about the Jews? What about God's chosen people? Uh, and there in chapter 9, 10, and 11, in particular 9, it speaks pretty boldly about God's electing grace. I did not grow up, uh, I did not grow up in the Reformed faith. Um, I grew up in churches that were very Arminian, not believing uh, or not teaching uh, the sovereign grace of God in salvation. So for me particularly, when I got to chapter 9, I was a little bit blown off my feet, especially the verses we're about to read, verses 6 through 13. It says this, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I have hated. Wow. Jacob I loved, Esau I have hated, 
The older will serve the younger. God's electing grace right, right there. And of course, like many of us, uh, I was bothered by Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. What's going on here? And, and what in the world does that have to do with God's redemptive story? How does this all fit together? Well, let me put you at ease in a, in a couple of ways. First of all, the whole point of Romans, and this is going to lead into what we're, what we're looking at this morning, the whole point of Romans chapter 9 right here is not to speak about some kind of double predestination, you know, some sense in which God is just going, well, you're saved and you're not, and you're saved and you're not. It's not speaking of that. But it is speaking of God's electing grace, that it's only He that brings dead men to life. It's only he that can bring the the dead spiritually and and bring them uh, the gift of salvation. And of course, when it's speaking here of the electing grace of God, it's it's speaking about, when it says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, it's quoting Malachi chapter 1. And Malachi chapter 1 is speaking about the Israelite nation and the Edomites. Those are the descendants, if you read already in, uh, in our text this morning, the Edomites were the descendants of Esau. And so in Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, it's not speaking specifically about the man Esau, the man Jacob. It's speaking about the, the corporate Esau and the corporate Jacob. And he's saying, Israel, all of Israel, all of Jacob's descendants I have loved, and all of Esau's descendants, the Edomites, I have hated. Well, you still go, I still got a problem with that, Todd. <laughs> Why is God choosing to love these and choosing to hate those? Why would he hate anyone? Well, I think we have to understand that what Paul is using here is a comparative love. So there's a corporate expression when it says, Jacob, I loved Esau, I hate. It's not speaking about specifically the man. And then it's speaking about a comparative Love. And Jesus uses this comparative love. In Luke uh, chapter uh, 14, I think it's chapter 14, yeah, 14 verse 26, Jesus, when speaking about discipleship, said this, if you're going to come after me, you have to hate your father and mother, your son or daughter, if you are going to be my disciple. You say, wait a second. To be Jesus' disciple, I have to hate my mom and dad. What in the world is Jesus saying? Because in other places, it speaks about honoring our father and mother. It speaks about loving even our enemies. Why would God say, why would Jesus say you have to hate? Because he's, he's, he's giving this description of the comparative love that we ought to have for Christ, for him, compared with anyone else. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that that. Your love for me, your devotion to me, should be so singular, so so completely the priority, that it would almost appear as if you hate your mother and father. You don't hate your mother and father, but the love that you have for your mother and father and the love that you have for me should should be so vastly different. The devotion you have for me and the devotion you have for your mom and dad should be so vastly different that, it, that comparatively, it almost seems like hate. That's what God is saying in Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. He's saying, 
my, my affection, my electing grace that I set upon, upon those people, upon you, is so singular, so intense, that comparatively, comparatively, it seems like there's that, there's that distinction, there's that gap. Well, we need to remember in all of this, as we go to our text this morning, what we've said over and over again, we need to remember that the Bible, from Genesis verse one, chapter 1, verse 1, to all the way at the end of Revelation, from first page to last, first word to last word, is the story of God's redeeming sinners through Jesus Christ. So you go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 8. What is that about? It's about God redeeming sinners through Jesus Christ. You go to Job chapter 4, verse 22. What is that about? It's about God redeeming sinners through Jesus Christ. You go to Genesis chapter 25, verse 19. What is that about? It's about God redeeming sinners through Jesus Christ. And here we're going to have a picture zeroing down in history in this amazing moment. And it really is an astounding moment. Where God is going to reveal that in His story, He is the one who brings grace. In His story, He is the one who is working out redemption. And that this redemption cannot be stopped. God's redemptive plan cannot be stopped. And we're going to see that on the ground with Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau. Let's read in Genesis chapter 25, beginning at verse 19. Some of you wonder why I'm not beginning uh, at verse 12. Uh, and because George last week, remember, he decided to teach on that. So I'm like, fine, brother. I'm not even going to go there. Preach my sermon. I'll skip past that. Verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Remember when it says these are the generations, those are a signal that we're in another, we're in another section of Genesis. Ten sections of Genesis, ten Toledos or Toledots. And, uh, and this Ishmael, the one before, was number seven. Here we are, generations of Isaac, this is number eight. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padam Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau, which by the way means red. (laughs) Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. That would have been bizarre, watching this twin grab onto the heel. So they called his name Jacob, which, by the way, in Hebrew at that point meant heel. (laughs) So red and heel. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. 
Esau loved, excuse me, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, or literally red stuff in the Hebrew, which is why that's what it says on your outline, the red stuff. Let me eat some of that red stuff, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom, which also, by the way, means red. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate it, drank, rose, and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Just a few verses there, not a huge chunk, and yet it, clearly it has implications that, that ripple all the way through the story of God's redemptive plan and, and right into Romans and other places, into Hebrews, into Malachi. God's redemptive plan on the move, and yet here you have these characters, and I don't mean that in a nice way. <laughs> there's these characters. And there's ways in which the God's redemptive plan could have been halted, stopped, if it was left up to human um, uh, design, if it was left up to, to, depending upon how men and women reacted, if they did the right thing, if, it was, if God's grace was left up to them, the story would have been halted here because it's, it's just a mess. But God intended to show that his plan won't be stopped. And first of all, we see, as I've divided up here, that it's not stopped by our inabilities. It's very interesting that over and over again, this theme of, of, of the wives of the patriarchs being barren. And, and you've got to put yourself in the story here to really understand the intensity of this. Remember that Isaac is the miracle son, right? Isaac's the miracle son. He's the son of the promise. Abraham struggled to believe God. His wife was barren. She was old. And, and you know, Abraham said, you know what? I've got to help God out a little bit. And I'm going to take this other wife. And I'm going to get another son, Ishmael. And he'll help fulfill this promise. And God says, no, I've got a plan here. And Isaac's the son of the promise. Isaac's the one that went up to the mountain. Isaac's the one that God miraculously rescued uh, when, when Abraham was obeying and trusting him. Isaac's the son of the promise. And he marries this amazing woman, Rebecca. We know from the previous chapter that not only was she beautiful, but this was a strong, strong woman. Remember, she was uh, supposed to water the camels uh, or, or, uh, that um, were brought there by, by Abraham's envoy to go find this wife. And there were 10 camels, and she volunteered to water them. It's about 20 to 25 gallons of water per camel to water a camel. This is a tough woman. So you have the son of the promise, and you have this amazing woman, and, and the promise is that, they're going to, 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 uh, that their descendants are going to be more than the stars of the sky, the sand on the seashore, and what happens? She can't have children. She can't have children. She can't have children for 20 years. Because it says they got married when, when he was 40, and the, and the sons, the twins were born when she was, when she was 60. And that must have been a dark, despairing time. Wondering, what, what, what about this promise? 
In fact, it probably was worse. We read in the verses that are before it. Ishmael's already had 12 children, 12 sons. Isaac, the son of the promise, has none. 20 years, two decades. God, when are you going to fulfill this? When are you going to fulfill your promise? What does Isaac do? He does something that is great here. Isaac takes it to the Lord. It says that Isaac prayed. And I bet he prayed over and over and over again. After a year, after two years, after three years. Lord, when are you going to fulfill your promise? How is this going to happen? Lord, you promised that we would be, we would be the, 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 the leaders, the, the, the ones who would, who, would, who would fulfill, who helped fulfill the promise you gave to my father Abraham. Yet we don't have any kids. Praying over and over and over again. Thought about this because I have friends of mine. I know you do. Maybe you have, uh, maybe you experienced it. Maybe you have children who are experiencing it. Just the darkness of being, of being uh, a barren, of just not being able to have kids. And how tough that can be. But you know, even as we think about God fulfilling His promise, I think that all of us probably have experienced that maybe in our homes. Maybe there's a son or daughter that you have, and you say, you know, Lord, from the very time they were born, I gave them to you. They were baptized. They were dedicated. There was a promise there. I was promising that I would try to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and I thought you were promising that that because they were in my family that, that you would save them. And yet, Lord, it's been five years. It's been 10 years. It's been 20 years. Lord, when are you going to fulfill the promise in my son and my daughter? When are you going to fulfill the promise in my grandson, my granddaughter? Lord, we're, we're, I've been praying for two decades. What do we do with that? Well, I think we do, first of all, what Isaac did, and that's just, brothers, keep praying. The story's not done yet. You see, the story of redemption, both on a cosmic level and in the life of of men and women. It's just not done yet, right? It's not done yet. Some of you men in here came to know Christ at a very late age, right? And you'd say, hey, you know what? Don't, don't give up on me. <laughs> Thankfully, my father or others prayed for me. They didn't give up on me. And my story just took a little bit longer than others. God is going to accomplish things even when we don't have the ability to take care of it. And what God wanted to show Isaac here and show us, show all of human history, is that he is the one. He is the one that brings about the promise. It's not by this amazing son, Isaac, son of the promise, and this strong woman, Rebecca, who should have had kids like crazy. No, God says, no, I'm the one. I'm the one who does this. Despite your inabilities, despite your weaknesses, I'm the one. Well, the pregnancy happens. And it says at the verse 22, the children struggled together within her. Literally in the Hebrew, it says that that they were smashing each other (laughs) in her womb. And apparently it was so painful that this woman who has prayed for 20 years, please give me children, is now praying if it is thus, if this was what it was going to be, why did I pray to have kids? <laughs> I'm in so much pain. Why? If I knew it was going to be like this, forget it. She does the right thing, though, too. She goes to the Lord. In the midst of her pain, she goes to the Lord. 
And she asked the Lord, what's going on here? And the Lord says something very fascinating. Two nations, verse 23, are in your womb, and the two peoples from within you shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other. And here it is, the electing grace of God at the end of verse 23. The older shall serve the younger. God is saying, listen, I'm the one that gave you children, and I'm the one who's going to arrange this. And my arrangement is going to be that the older will serve the younger, even though that culturally that's not how it works. But I'm God, and I'm going to be the one that does this. My redemptive plan is working. I'm on the move, and I will accomplish it, despite your weaknesses or inabilities. Well, there's the word of God. But then you have to deal with Isaac. But there in verses 24 and 28, we see that God's redemptive plan keeps going despite our self-centeredness. It is great that Isaac prayed. It was a great example to us. But when you see what Isaac does in verse 28, you begin to go, wow, this, this guy, this guy is not a very good dad. This guy is a dad who's all about himself. It's not just that Isaac played favorites, which is a terrible thing to do. You know, you just never, you never want to say, you never want to say, we know this is dads or granddads. You never want to say, well, that grandchild's my favorite. That is, a, that is dysfunctional in every way possible. Or that child is my favorite. Uh, you should be able to say that about all, all your children for different, way, different reasons. But Isaac, it says, he liked Esau. And here's the sad part. He liked Esau because Esau gave him good food. That's what it says about this relationship with this dad and his sons. He liked Esau because Esau brought some really good stuff home. He liked Esau because, man, the venison he brought home was amazing. The jalapeno duck poppers that that, uh, Esau put together, they were better than anybody else, and they came in regularly. And I like that. I like that I feast because of my son. And it's interesting, Rebecca heard God's word about the older will serve the younger. Certainly, Rebecca told her husband what God had said. So, so Isaac would have had God's word regarding his sons. Isaac would have had his own story. His own story of, of Abraham and his dad and Ishmael and all of that. His own story of going up on the mountain. He had all of that. He had all of that. And yet he's like, you know what? I mean, that stuff's great, but have you tasted the venison this guy brings home? Do you understand how good these feasts are? I mean, that's what I'm about. You know what? I've, 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 I've got two sons. This promised thing will work out, and I'm just going to sit back and retire. You bring me some food. This needs to be about me. And so I know God has said that his electing grace is going to go like this, but in our culture, this is the way it is. And Esau, man, what a great guy he is. As I look at these different ways in which the the redemptive plan of God, if it had depended upon men, would have been diverted, I'm thankful, like you are, that God's grace continues regardless of what we do, 
But I'm also, as we look at these four different moments, I'm also personally warned about how I behave. And I want us to be that way. So I look at Isaac, and I had this question this week. What am I loving more than Christ? What am I loving more than Christ? Now, I'd never say it out loud. I never, I, you know, if you were to say, well, Todd, I think you love Florida Gator football more than Jesus. I'm like, oh, no, I don't. Never. <laughs> yeah, some of you are. Thank you, brothers. Uh, Todd, I think you, uh, you know, I think you, I think you love, I think you love seeing your son play football more than you, uh, than you really love Christ. I think you want, uh, I think you want and love their success more than you really are interested in, well, no, 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 that's not me. I would never say it, but if you observe my life, you'd go, wow, there's some moments, Todd, where at least in those moments, it seems like there are things you love more than Christ. And that's what we're seeing here in in Isaac. More than the promise of God, more than the redemptive plan of God, Isaac, Isaac loved the traditions of their culture. The firstborn, tough firstborn, tough guy. And he loved the feasts. And he loved the fact that he didn't have to go out hunting anymore. And he loved that more. But despite that, despite that, in the face of that, God's redemptive plan keeps going. Nothing can stop God's redemptive plan. So despite Isaac's self-centeredness, his sinfulness, his other loves, God's redemptive plan keeps going. And then we get to this amazing, these amazing six verses, verses 29 through 34, this, this moment with the stew. I remember when I was, you know, little, maybe you growing up in the church like me, you heard this story. And the way we told the story, the way we talked about this story, I would have thought this is like three chapters long. And I remember first finding out why well, it's only six verses. I felt like that's like half of Genesis is the story of the whole selling of the birthright. Six verses, only six verses, but so profound. And like we've already seen, has cosmic implications in this story. And the first, one, first look here is we have, I want us to look at Esau and see what this guy's like. And this guy is, uh, <laughs> well, I've thought about it as they talk about him. He's, he's strong, he's, he's hairy, he's incredible at hunting. Uh, so so skillful that he's bringing home feasts all the time. Uh, we also know uh, that this guy, if we look at Hebrews chapter 12, um, we're going to look at that in a second. We know that this guy is uh, hes kind of good with the ladies, had a lot of relationships. And he's a little vulgar. Uh, clearly in, in, this, in this image that we have in verses 29 through 34, he's kind of a man of the moment. Seems like he's kind of a guy who's, who's all about grabbing what he needs right now. He's impulsive. And while we, in, in some ways you go, oh yeah, that's bad. Obviously that's bad. Honestly, I think, I think a lot of us would have gone, man, I, I want to hang out with this guy. This guy sounds like a really, like, sounds like one of my frat brothers from UT or Ole Miss or Mississippi State. You know, he's a great hunter. Kind of fun, fun guy at the party. Yeah, he's a little vulgar, pulls little jokes, you know. Good with the ladies. Yeah, it's probably not so good that he did all that. But, you know, he's, man, this is a, this is a great guy. 
grabbing the moment, saying what just needs to be said, things like, oh, what do I need a birthright right now, man? Give me that soup. And that's who Esau was. But there's a foolishness in here that is really intense. And he sells his birthright for a moment. Now we need to understand birthright. Birthright uh, at this time in the history of the world and in that culture meant that the firstborn uh, received a couple of things that were, that were uh, really valuable. First and foremost was that they received a double portion of inheritance. So whatever the other sons got, the firstborn got double. And not only that, they were proclaimed, they were the ones who then became the leader of the family, which had significant both leadership and economic uh, implications. So to be the firstborn was the ultimate. Not only that, though, in this case right here, you're the firstborn of Isaac, the son of the promise. I'm sure Esau knew Isaac's story, his dad's story. I'm sure Esau knew Abraham's story. You're not just the firstborn, get double in the inheritance, and and you're going to be the leader of this family. You're going to be the leader of the family of God. I mean, it was an incredible birthright, promise given to this guy Esau. What happens here? It says, Jacob was cooking stew, and Esau came in from the field. He was exhausted. He's tired. Esau says to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stuff, for I'm exhausted. Says, therefore, his name was called Edom, which also I said, said before means red. Said, what a sad thing for a nation to be completely named after this moment of selling the birthright. Jacob says, sell me your birthright right now. Esau says, I'm about to die. What good is a birthright to me? Give me the stuff. Give me the food. And he went ahead, and it's sad. It says in verse 34, Esau ate, drank, rose, and went away. That was, for him, that was the moment. That was the whole moment. It's interesting the way that it's described in Romans, excuse me, in Hebrews chapter 12. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. A little more sobering to see the, uh, the intensity of this. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. writer of Hebrews says this, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Let me just say this, anytime I'm reading in my Bibles and there's a sentence like that, I want to find out what comes after it. <laughs> see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. I want the grace of God, I don't want to fail to obtain it. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral and unholy like Esau. That's where I got the... He's a ladies' man. Slept around. Unholy just means he was vulgar. Who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with with tears. Who sold his birthright for a single meal. Esau had to have it now. I need my pleasure now. I need my stomach full now. I need this moment now. 
I was laughing as I was thinking about this and writing. I shared with the guys last night. Boy, I tell you, you know, FedEx, Amazon, all, they, have, they, have, uh, they have changed our, our, our idea of what now means, right? I mean, it seems like we can't wait for same-day delivery. Like, bring that robot to my house. I want to be able to order it, and I want it to show up in the afternoon. We're so trained now that if we go order something online... And it, you were thinking, wow, okay, today's Thursday, so it should arrive Saturday at the latest, right? And you, and you find out, oh, uh, this will be available next Friday. You're like, next Friday? You know, what am I, in 1920? Like, how can you not get that? I got to have it now. Well, boy, this is a, a pretty intense picture of now. Esau says, I want these things now. I want this single meal now. And he sells his birthright. And amidst all of this craziness, God's redemptive plan is still marching. Amidst even this messed up story. Now I know that Esau gets a bad rap. But I don't think Jacob's the hero of this story by any means. In fact, I said Jacob means heel when he was born. But because of the way Jacob acted most of his life, it actually changed the the meaning of the name Jacob. So that Jacob came to mean heel grabber. It came to mean schemer. Someone, you know, we read earlier, Jacob, it says, uh, where where is it, verse... uh, Verse 27, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, and Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Uh, Literally in the Hebrew, the idea of a quiet man was this. He was just a calm, cool customer. He was was even keeled, which is great. In his greatest moments, uh, Derek Kidner says, he was this even keeled guy. In his worst moments, he was a guy you didn't want to do business with because he was going to take you and you weren't going to even know it. This is a schemer, and you see it over and over again as we go on in Genesis. This is a guy who, uh, uh, who, who seems so nice, but he's always got a little plan going on. The heel grabber. And see, I think he's got a plan going on here. I don't think, I don't think he was accidentally cooking stew when his brother came home. I think the way that Jacob reacts almost instantly shows that this was a a scheme that Jacob had. And here's what we see about Jacob and what we have here in our notes, that despite, uh, that that, that God's redemptive plan is going even despite our self-reliance because that's what you see Jacob being. Jacob would have heard from his mom, the older will serve the younger. She loved Jacob. I'm sure she told him that. But here's what happens. Jacob couldn't wait on God. And Jacob thought, you know what? I can figure this out. In fact, you're going to see over and over and over again, Jacob going, I can figure this out. I can help God out on this one. I'm going to take care of this one. God, I got this. I don't know if you're, uh, if you grew up in a family like mine, my grandfathers were believers. My great-grandfathers were believers. Uh, my dad was a believer, but we had kind of going on in the Erickson clan, we kind of had going on this, uh, we weren't Roman Catholic, but we had our own little version of works-based righteousness that was, work, that was happening. Great work ethic in the Erickson family. 
I mean, honestly, just a wonder if there's something there's something redeeming about the Erickson family. It's the work ethic. The problem is, we also took that into our salvation. Like, oh yeah, we knew God saved us by grace, but boy, you better work your tail off not to lose it. <laughs> now we never said that out loud, um, but I'll tell you this, and this is a little bit embarrassing for me. Um, it was a pretty pretty late in life, like in my teens, before I, before I knew that the phrase, God helps those who helps themselves, is not a verse in the Bible. Because <laughs> I heard my grandfather say that a lot. And I just assumed it was in Scripture. And that would have defined us. I think that's what, what Jacob lived by. Jacob was self-reliant. Yeah, uh, yeah, I understand that promise that God gave my mom. I'm going to help God out a little bit here because you know what? I'm really good at this stuff. I got a plan. I got a plan where this promise will work out. I'm going to work it out. I'm going to do this thing. So he's preparing the stew. I even imagine he knew Esau really loves this particular stew. He's out there preparing. He's going to come back. He's exhausted. And the first thing out of Jacob's mouth when his brother says, give me some of that red stuff is, sell me your birthright. And Esau's like, well, what good is a birthright to me? And what does Jacob do? He doesn't like, okay, yeah, great. No, he says, no, swear to me right now. Sign this paper. I have the papers right here. Just happen to have them. <laughs> Self-reliance. I'm going to take care of it. You're going to see this. Jacob is going to, Jacob is going to, and man, the, the next weeks are going to be so good. Some of the, some of the most amazing passages of Scripture. Um, Genesis 32 has probably had more impact in my life than any other particular chapter of the entire Bible. But it's this, this, this self-reliance that God, in his redemptive plan, as he brings the promise through Jacob, has to work out. His grace has to work in. But praise the Lord, his grace is working in. His grace is going to continue despite Jacob's scheming. Despite Jacob's distrust, despite Jacob saying, you know what, God, I got this. God's like, you don't got this. And I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to do this work. Well, this whole passage ends with a one sentence that is very profound and very important for us as we wrap things up this morning, brothers. It says, thus Esau despised his birthright. And I immediately thought, what about you, Todd? And I thought, what about y'all? You see, I have a birthright. You have a birthright. The Bible says that if our lives are hidden in Christ, that we are co-heirs with Christ. The Bible intentionally says that you are sons of God. It doesn't say sons and daughters of God, not because the Bible is paternalistic or misogynistic, The Bible says that because the place of honor is to be the firstborn son. So what God is saying, both to men and women, both rich and poor, both uh, influential and non-influential, what God is saying is if, if when I adopt you, I adopt you as a firstborn son, regardless of if you're male or female. You get the position of the birthright. 
You are co-heirs with Christ. You get justification, adoption, sanctification, glorification. That belongs to you. You have an inheritance in heaven that cannot spoil or fade. That is a birthright that belongs to you. No one can take it away. That is our birthright, brothers. And I want to be careful not to despise that birthright, even for a moment. I don't want to sell my birthright for a meal. I don't want to sell my birthright for a moment on the internet. I don't want to sell my birthright for a moment in business. I don't want to sell my birthright for an extra dollar. I don't want to sell my birthright for some moment of pride. Because the birthright that I've been given is this birthright of grace. It has been given to me, just handed to me. And I don't want in any place, as I, as I soak, as I live in the grace in which God has placed us. I want to enjoy it. I don't want to despise it. And I don't want to trade it. I don't want to trade it for anything in the world. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in some ways we've only scratched the surface of these uh, verses, of this significant passage. And yet, Lord, I trust that uh, you have given us what we've needed today. Lord, we do praise you and thank you for the birthright that you have given us. um, That you have paid the price in order to secure for us this birthright. And that we have been given this abundance of grace even as it says in Isaiah, a double portion for all our sins. Father, thank you for that. As we have seen that your redemptive plan continues no matter what we are, we are so thankful that your redemptive plan has continued in our lives no matter what. Lord, help us more and more to embrace and to soak and to be thankful for what you have given us and to never despise our birthright. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name.